welcome back to the Progress City Radio Hour. Uh, my name is Michael Crawford. That's me. And with me, as always, it's Jeff Crawford. Jeff, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm very excited to be here and talk about some real loves of my life. <laughs> That's right. This is one that is very near and dear to our hearts and really takes us back quite a ways. Today, we are beginning what is one of a two-part episode, speaking about the 1980 theme park soundtrack, the official album of Disneyland and Walt Disney World. This was a vinyl record that we had way back in the day. And got listened to quite a bit. Jeff, what are what what are the things that immediately spring to your mind when you think about this record? Well, the first thing that springs to my mind, and this is why I love records so much, is the artwork. There's a great picture of Cinderella Castle at night with the blue light with the Main Street Electrical Parade coming in front of it on the back. Bunch of great pictures from attractions, some of which I knew as a kid, some of which were from Disneyland. See, America Sings. Yes. Um, that I had no idea what they were supposed to be. Uh, so I remember the art. I remember playing it over and over again on our Fisher Price record player that we had. That is what I was fishing for because the very first thing that I think of when I think of this record is our Fisher Price record player, which Let's give a shout out to Fisher Price for making a record player that worked throughout our childhood. I'm sure it still works today if we busted it out. I, yeah. I don't know how they did it, or but uh, they made the most durable record player in the history of record players. And so easy to use. I mean, we were very, very young and using this record player. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was great. And listening to the soundtrack, as you said, the artwork, uh, being kind of confused about what America Sings was, because it had the picture of the dog in the rocking chair with his pipe. And that seemed strange. So I didn't know what that was, <laughs> but I knew it was something at Disneyland that was sort of distant and mysterious. So this record makes me think of, you know, us kicking back in in the playroom with the uh, record player going on the floor and just piles of junk all around and having a good old time listening to the classics. Now, the other thing it makes me think of is that our aunt dubbed this onto one side of a cassette tape yes. and the official soundtrack to Epcot Center on the other side. So A side was this, B side was Epcot, and we would listen to that in the car a lot and listen to it exclusively on trips car trips to Walt Disney world. Absolutely. And when we got our, I, I think we probably got the, got the tape when we got our first, uh, you know, off brand walk men. And I think we probably each, I think she dubbed us each probably a copy of that tape. Uh, like you said, the, the Disney world, Disneyland on one side, the Epcot on the other. And uh, I was a pretty cool guy going on my school trips with my Walkman and my soundtrack of Disney World, listening Amen. along. And we will be listening along to the whole record and discussing some of the history, both inside and outside of Disney, uh, of this record and the songs in it. So before we embark on our own musical adventure of 
uh, Walt Disney World in Disneyland. Uh, let's check in with Walt. Jiminy Cricket, and I'm going along with you on one of the most exciting trips you've ever taken, a tour of Disneyland, USA. We're going to visit Main Street, Adventureland, Frontierland, Tomorrowland, and finally Fantasyland, uh, where I make my home, of course. Best of all, we'll meet Walt Disney himself, and he's going to point out the principal sights in his magic kingdom. Right now, we're standing in the railroad station near the entrance to Disneyland, just off the town square. The old train is coming, and Walt's right on board. Listen, you can hear it whistling in the distance. Hello, welcome to Disneyland. We have dedicated this happy place to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America. This dedication is engraved on a plaque at the foot of the flagpole in the Disneyland Town Square. Suddenly, as we come into this square, the cares and worries of today are left behind, and we find ourselves in a little town in the year 1900. On one hand is the city hall, and on the other is the fire station. Down Main Street, we see the Emporium and all the many shops. There is the old music store, the Penny Arcade with its blaring orchestrion, the Popcorn Man, and the old Calliope. At the end of the street, the marching band appears in full regalia. But let's take the horse-drawn streetcar and ride down Main Street. In 1980, Disneyland Records released what would be the first official soundtrack of Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Now, this was the first soundtrack as we know it today, which used audio from multiple attractions to recreate an experience like visiting the park. But Disneyland Records had made many records in advance of this that had music from the parks. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about park soundtracks in the Side B episode, but it bears mentioning that the activity in the 1970s in park audio had a major impact on this recording. Starting with the Enchanted Tiki Room Jungle Cruise soundtrack in 1968, there was a string of attraction LPs that ran through the next decade. In fact, most of the tracks on this record are from those. There was an LP for the Main Street Electrical Parade, actually a couple, The Country Bear Jamboree, America Sings, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, It's a Small World, and story records from the Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean. And Michael, these records are very nice. They are, first, they're excellent. It's hard to believe there was this magical period where all these attractions would see musical releases. Um, they would just crank them out. I've got a hallway here. I, the last, I don't know, couple of years, I've been trying to collect all the ones that I that I never had before. 
and framed them up, put them down the hallway. They're pretty great. And aside from the music, which is excellent, these are really nice products. They Most of them have gatefold booklets with lots of art and uh, little stories, as you mentioned, like the Country Bear has a lot of, a lot of great Mark Davisy art in there and stories about the different bears. And, you know, they put out stuff for the Golden Horseshoe, for Date Night at Disneyland, for the Orange Bird, all these attractions. So, you know, now there's, there's hardly anything like that. But back in the day, you could go in. I'm sure the record store was just on Main Street. The music store was just full of this kind of stuff. So amazing to think about. You got to wonder how far. I mean, I guess they just sold them there and probably in a catalog and if that. But just the fact that they would make it for that is incredible. It really is. Uh, in addition, and perhaps most interesting, there is a fantastic release in 1973 called A Musical Souvenir of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. Now, that's quite a mouthful. This album was a collection of live music that could be heard around the Magic Kingdom, and it really is quite incredible in its breadth and depth of the music. Now, this record would mine that mine that musical souvenir record quite a bit, and we were introduced to it through this soundtrack, but once we found that musical souvenir record, I think it was pretty eye-opening for both of us. Yes, and I, I will mention that again and again as we go through this episode, but discovering when I discovered that that musical souvenir existed first, it's a picture disc, really, really nice looking picture disc. And it has all, all the live entertainment from this eight, 1980 album and more and longer cuts, which was just really eye opening. And so that was a really exciting discovery in adult life that that even existed and that all these songs we knew and loved had expanded editions and you got to know a little more about the groups involved and what the songs were. So that was exciting. Yeah. It's just a, such a creative way to introduce someone to a theme park to showcase all the live entertainment. So I'm glad that that ended up being reflected in this first official album. I think it's such an important part of the fabric of the music of the parks, obviously. This musical souvenir record from 1973 was made under the supervision of VP of Entertainment Bob Yanni, who was responsible for most of the entertainment in the parks in the 1970s. Music director James Christensen, who handled the music in both parks, was on hand. Christensen had a long career at Disney, serving as music director for both parks, which I have no idea how you would do that. Uh, he was a busy man. He made arrangements for parades and shows, performing all around the world. Uh, and notably arranging the Main Street Electrical Parade and Fantasy in the Sky music and directing the All-American College Orchestra during the 80s in Epcot. I just wish they still had something like the All-American College Orchestra. What a yes. cool program. That would have been that would have been a fun a fun gig to play with for sure. Yes, indeed. Tom Durrell was the recording engineer for the musical souvenir record, working out of Studio D and the Utilidors under the Magic Kingdom. Uh, Durrell would be involved in much of the recording of live ensembles during this time, so some of his work would make it onto the 1980 soundtrack. And finally, Jack Wagner would serve as producer. Jack is a legendary figure in and out of Disney. After being a child actor and having a recurring role on Ozzy and Harriet as an adult, he was a longtime radio DJ at KHJ. Disney hired him to help develop better background music for their parks. 
and he became the voice of Disneyland, and his voice is unmistakable. Jack had a studio in his house just two miles from Disneyland, and from there he would record announcements for Disneyland, Walt Disney World, and beyond, and he would also edit these background loops as we know them today. Uh, his voice used to be used at the Orlando airport, which was always a nice welcome when you flew in. Yes, I mean, as much as, you know, Buddy Dyer, no no beef with Buddy, but I do miss that Jack Wagner intro. It was sort of the last remaining bastion of Jack Wagner, and it's, for, you know, Disney fans of a certain age, it's like a Pavlovian response to that voice. This contribution to background music is quite something. It's It's hard to believe that before he came along, there wasn't background music as we know today. And this one DJ came with his record collection and kind of put it all together. It really is crazy because we think of the music as being an absolutely integral part of the park experience. Now it's something people obsess over so much uh, internally and externally fans obsess about it, you know, inside Imagineering obsesses about putting together the perfect audio mix for a land. And it's such a big deal. And to think that it wasn't at some point would be, that would be just a totally alien experience for a park goer today. And Jack was such a, he seemed like quite the personality. He did all the character voices. I think he did the character voices for Disney on ice. He helped put the music together for a bunch of things. And, you know, you got to think his, his influence is way up there because of his development of this background music and production of all these records. He really set the tone and so much of it was done out of his house in a, in a room in his house where he's recording, you know, wind chimes for Adventureland and this and that it's, it's pretty incredible. It really is. It just shows how, I don't know the, the feel of a family shop that Disney had back then of, you know, of course, Jack has his home studio and he, he puts together his tapes and then drives them over when he's done. And that's that and just kind of works on his own and comes up with whatever he thinks is good. And then we put it into the park. We had the uh, chance to chat with Don Dorsey, who is a protege of Jack's about Jack and then Don's career, which would go on for decades. We're so excited to share the entirety of that interview in a few weeks. Yes. Michael, what was it like to hear Don's stories. Well, let me tell you, uh, I'm always excited to talk to the people we talk to, uh, whether it's somebody whose stories I don't know very well, because it's exciting to learn about people who uh, have done things and you're not aware of them. It's exciting to learn, exciting to get to know people. But then there are people who have done things that you know very well, and that is exciting too. And this <laughs> was a very exciting interview for me to listen to Don's stories because Don's influence on the parks is in very specific areas that are very near and dear to me. So this yes. was super exciting. Yes. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we're going to play you a little bit of him talking about Jack and Jack Wagner and Jim Christensen. Here is Don. Jack Wagner was kind of the announcer of Disneyland, but he worked on so much stuff in in Disneyland and later in Walt Disney World. And then there's Jim Christensen, who was the musical director of Disneyland. Am I getting that right? Yes. How did, how did their jobs differ? Well, Jim Christensen was uh, the arranger and in charge of the Disneyland band. Anytime there was a parade to be recorded or something, he would 
uh, if not doing the arrangements himself, he would select the arrangers, the musicians. Jack was the producer, and so he was in charge of booking the studio, making sure that everybody showed up on time, that it was recorded properly, that it was mixed properly. There were a lot of technical requirements for show tapes at the Disney parks, and so he rode herd over all of that. Wow. And when I came in, because of my earlier studio experience, um, Jack had been doing basically uh, music production for background music, basically chaining a bunch of existing tracks into uh, a nice flowing program and doing voiceover work. So his level of recording engineering was pretty limited. And I had was able to come in and bring alignment tapes and show him how to demagnetize his tape machines and make sure that everything was technically up to stuff in his home studio. So we complemented each other in that way. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the interesting things that, that he's responsible for is really this revolution in background music for the parks. When did that start, and were you involved in that with him? I mean, did he just have a giant record collection that he went through for these things? or He had a giant record collection. Jack was a top DJ in the L.A. market at KHJ Radio in the 60s. And so being a DJ and being a member of the Recording Academy, he basically got his hands on every album that came out that was of interest to him. And when he was brought into Disneyland originally in 1970 to fix the background music, make it more appropriate for each area, he had all those resources. He was basically primed to take on that job. What was the background music like before he started working on that? Did they have speakers everywhere? Were they uh, playing music? Jack has said that the background on Main Street prior to his involvement was along the lines of current popular hits like Mrs. Robinson. That's so hard to imagine. (laughs) Yes, while you're you're walking down Main Street USA and staring at a castle, you're hearing um, (sighs) Mrs. Robinson. (laughs) It was the strangest non sequitur. And uh, so he was brought in to fix that and make it more appropriate to the visual experience and the whole thematic environment. And when he did that, I guess that was when they discovered he also had this reach dulcet tones of ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. (laughs) And so he became the voice of Disneyland. It's hard to believe that at one point, Mrs. Robinson was playing on main street USA, Michael. (laughs) For, for several reasons, but yeah, it, how strange would that be to just be going down and hearing, I don't know, Love and Spoonful or something while you're walking down Main Street? And it's just very groovy. I mean, yeah, it's just imagining that layer of immersion being missed uh, defies belief for me. But really, I mean, throughout the park, as I said, it's just such an integral part of the park design. And it's strange to me that that wasn't something that like Walt like right. had mandated from the very start. Yeah. You just wonder if the speakers were up all the way back then, but yeah, that probably they weren't up to snuff at, at, at that point. And I mean, even 
probably didn't have the time or the money to do it. But you'd think at some point in those first 10 years when he was still alive, it would have crossed somebody's mind. Right, you know? right. So thank you, Jack Wagner, for Absolutely. setting us up. And for your work on this soundtrack. So this 1980 soundtrack is compiled of the songs from these all these attraction LPs and several from the musical souvenir. And the result is something so very eclectic, it boggles the mind. So part of why I love this record so much is it was such a musical education for me. On the site Discogs, the genres are listed as electronic, jazz, non-music, brass and military, folk, world, country, stage and screen, spoken word, marches, bluegrass, soundtrack, Dixieland, and synth pop. My favorite is non-music. I like non-music. It's yeah, non-music. It's anti-music, man. I mean, yeah, try and find another album with that uh, pedigree, that list of identifiers. You know, there's no credits on this. You assume that uh, Wagner and and Yanni and Christensen are involved again because there's no reason to think that they wouldn't be directly involved, seeing as they have compiled a lot of this stuff. But um, you would feel that Jack Wagner has his hands in this because of it. It just is so edited down uh, to the bare essentials, probably to fit the most on as they could. But the transitions are just wild. It feels like a, a late night radio show. And in fact, I used to play some of this record on a late night radio show. So it makes sense. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. It's very good to like drop, drop things in. Like I, I would drop things in on mixtapes. I would make for people to confuse them and confound them. And it uh, always worked, but yes, I, it really, somebody with a real editor's ear did this and the the cuts are so precise that you know years later when we got much longer versions of these songs it's almost jarring to hear like the real version of it because you're so used to the edits yeah there's got to be intense editing of course back then it was all tape editing so you would cut the tape and uh and tape it back together so Ugh. and just imagine, imagine the precision involved in that thank goodness i missed that era but uh i've heard a lot about it there was a lot of editing that went on here, and it can be jarring to where the soundtracks ended up, which we will talk about once the CD allowed longer soundtracks. But they did a great job fitting as much as they can onto the medium that they had. It's really impressive trip through the park. Yeah. What does an LP allow? It's like, what about like 20 minutes aside, maybe? 20 minutes aside, that's right. And the CD is 80 minutes, so... That really opens it up. That's right. So should we get into this? Absolutely. I'm ready to go. A trip down memory lane for sure. Let's pull it out of its jacket, dust it off, and uh, go to side A. Here we go. Baroque Hoedown is a song originally written by Jean-Jacques Perret and Gershon Kingsley. 
These two were both pioneers in the world of the synthesizer and avant-garde music in the mid-20th century. Jean-Jacques Perret left medical school in France to pursue music composition and later was an adopter of electronic instruments in the early 1950s, particularly the ondioline. Perret appeared on several records playing the unique instrument, a precursor to the clavioline, which would appear on many 1960s records. Perret moved to the United States and eventually hooked up with Kingsley, who, after being born in Germany, moved to the United States to pursue composition. Working on Broadway, and then as the staff arranger for Vanguard Records, where he met Kingsley. The two recorded the LP, The End Sound, from way out, which made some of the first major audience for synthesized music. Perret and Kingsley worked with Robert Moog, and Perry is said to own the second Moog ever made. The duo followed with another LP the next year, with 1967's Kaleidoscopic Vibrations, electronic pop music from way out. And this is the record which Baroque Hoedown appears a harpsichord gone country. The duo continued to turn heads with their playful arrangements with solid composition underneath, and even the Beatles would take note, sampling a bit of the Baroque hoedown for their 1968 Christmas record. And Michael, I feel like we should take a second and talk about the Beatles' Christmas records, because <laughs> if people yes. haven't listened to them, they really should <laughs> talk about Way Out. Yeah, they are, they are some sound, in sounds from Way Out. And it is so weird to me that they sampled Broke Hoedown. I know. I remember hearing this. It's just a little bloop in this really odd sound collage. And I was so confused when I was into the Beatles in high school before I found out about this. I was like, what is this? I, this must be like some older song. So indeed it yeah, was. Yeah, it's, it's so strange that you know we grew up knowing broke out down from this record from the parade and not realizing it had this like deeper history because it's such a weird song that it's it's just so strange that it exists to begin with that it wasn't something that was come up with specifically for this parade and then they they pulled it out of you know out of the pop culture to be the theme for the parade like you don't think of disney like disney today wouldn't pull a song just from some random French <laughs> art house project. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And it, it just goes to show like back in the day, how much control the entertainment guys had and just, they were basically just doing it on their own, making mixtapes of stuff they thought was interesting, I guess. That's right. Well, we're going to play just a little bit of the original version and you can hear its similarities and differences. Here is Baroque Hoedown by Pere and Kingsley. Thank <laughs> you. 
That's fun. That's really interesting. And it's fun how it's kind of a more like dangerous, hard edge yes. kind of version. Uh, but you can see how, I mean, the appeal, I'm sure that they heard the potential for this kind of like whimsical thing going on. What's funny to me is it sounds like it's like just like the bed recording, like it's already ready for those other float units to like plug in. Oh, yeah. Over it, you know? And uh, yeah, we'll get there. But I mean, the original soundtrack is so much like this. It makes me wonder if part of it is from this record because it just is so the essential part of it is just right there, you know, and there's some changes we'll discuss. So, yeah. so this record also caught the attention of Jack Wagner, who we talked about before, who was in possession of it when Disney Entertainment VP Bob Yanni was looking for music to accompany the Main Street Electrical Parade. Yanni wanted some music from Fantasia to accompany the parade, but Wagner searched and found this record to prove his belief that synthesized music should accompany the parade. Both Yanni and music director Jim Christensen agreed, and they set about to record a Disney version of Baroque Hoedown. Yanni and Christensen sought out Paul Beaver, an L.A. musician who was the West Coast Moog representative, to help them record the parade soundtrack. Beaver was an, a, a bit of an interesting fellow, and certainly someone you would call if you wanted some synthesizer work done. In fact, after demonstrating the Moog Modular Synthesizer at the Monterey Jazz Festival in 1967, Beaver would appear on tons of records that same year, as the technology slowly made its way into rock records. Beaver would appear on nine of the first ten records to feature the Moog, the other being the Perret and Kingsley record. Beaver would program the Moog for drummer Hal Blaine's influential Psychedelic Sounds record in 1967, and used the Moog to modulate Jim Morrison's voice on Strange Days, and also track on the Monkeys and Birds records later that year. Wow. Yeah, he's all over the place. And uh, those Monkeys, those late Monkeys records, people, I'm telling you, they're good. Yeah, head. They're weird. They're good. Beaver had a musical partner in Bernie Krause, forming the duo Beaver and Krause. So I guess these early synth uh, groups just had to use their last names. Like I guess a, so. Like ad firm or something. Beaver and Kraus combined to perform on 150 records between 1967 and 70, making this technology more and more mainstream. And Beaver was also friends with George Martin and familiar with Hammond organs, which explains how he ended up tracking a Hammond B3 on the Beatles' Magical Mystery Tour for the song Blue Jay Way. Wow, that is wild. We are combining worlds here. Michael. The worlds are definitely colliding. That's right. For sure. So Beaver and Christensen, the music director for Disneyland, worked together to make the soundtrack to the Electrical Parade for its debut in Disneyland in 1972. According to Bob Yanni, the nighttime activity had decreased a great deal at that time in Disneyland. I guess date night at Disneyland wasn't happening. And the parade was thought of as a way to bring back more nighttime business. In addition, Yanni said there was a bit of a morale problem at Disneyland with all the development in Florida and little attention being shown in California. I always think this is funny, Michael, because we hear this. I've heard this a lot that people thought that, you know, Disneyland wasn't getting any attention. Well, they just had Tomorrowland and 67 and Pirates. It's not that long, but they're just so used to updates year after year after year when Walt was alive. It's it's kind of funny to me. 
Right. Well, they had pirates and then they had Haunted Mansion. And right. so uh-huh. they were getting a ton of stuff. But yeah, the complex that they had in the early Walt Disney World years where, you know, nobody's paying any attention to us seems so funny to me now, considering that they continued to get things. It just <laughs> wasn't the Walt, as you right. say, the Walt era, total overwhelming amount of new content constantly so it is funny that they would get a little bit of a complex about it right the main street electrical parade debuted on june 17th 1972 and ran until 1974 now that version was not the version we know today it consisted of a lot of two-dimensional floats in addition to a few 3d ones and the parade was retired in 1974 and replaced by the bicentennial parade america on parade that was the parade where musician Don Dorsey was hired on to work for Disney in programming the synthesizer, as Paul Beaver had unfortunately recently passed away. Oh, that's a shame. I know. Although the Don Dorsey pickup was a a major one for Disney, so yes, yeah. absolutely. And this is opens up an entire generation of nighttime entertainment when they bring in Don Dorsey. That's true. So in 1977, the parade returned to Disneyland and debuted in Walt Disney World with many of the floats and music as we know them today. Dorsey spruced up the original soundtrack and added segments, most notably the introduction to the parade, which is Jack Wagner speaking via a Prophet 5 synthesizer to make that electro-synthomagnetic musical sound. The soundtrack for both parks will be released as separate LPs where excerpts of the Walt Disney World version were chosen for this soundtrack. And it's so funny. All those years, I never knew that Jack Wagner was the voice at the beginning. I know. There's a thing on YouTube with him making the announcement without it. And it's it's so him, you know? Oh, wow. (laughs) That is weird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But what a great idea. You know, the, uh, the original introduction is just kind of this oscillator sweep like beer which is still there and the but uh yeah the the intro fanfare that don came up with is really one of those magical moments in the disney parks it totally sends chills yeah and i mean it's a total like punch in the gut in a good way moment like every time you hear it and uh really just sets the stage for it's hard to imagine it without that yeah and there's so much to discuss with this parade and so much that I've learned. It's it's really interesting. And I, I kind of have a personal connection to this parade as uh, I worked the college program in Magic Kingdom in 1999, the summer that Spectrum Magic left and uh, Main Street Electrical Parade came back and they released a another soundtrack that year. But I, I worked parade control and I actually got to work when it then left and Spectre Magic came back. So all of that was cool, but there was something special about Main Street Electrical Parade being the parade that we grew up with, um, not knowing at that time that they would keep bringing it back and taking it away and bringing it back. (laughs) At that time, it was very exciting, and and they brought them down I-4. It was all a big thing. Um, I have a little license plate that has it and the, the, the soundtrack, like I said, so... That was a nice, that was the soundtrack that had like the orchestral version. That's right. right? That's right. Yeah, that's a good one. It was very exciting. um, As much as I love Spectrum Magic, you know, being back then, being back when we were all younger, uh, it seemed like 
the main street parade had been away forever. Yes, yes. And it was like really seeing something like really emerging from the mists of time right, or something. Right. And uh, it was a total throwback to our, to our youth. In, a, in an era where the throwback wasn't happening that much. Now it's a little bit more common and you know, they, they throw bones to the fans more, but that was a surprise. So, yeah. Anyway, before we move on, I have to mention one more thing that the floats from this electrical parade, along with an extended soundtrack were used for the 1978 Super Bowl at the Orange Bowl. And all I can say is go watch this on YouTube because this is, <laughs> this is something. This is something that I dismiss in general that Disney used to always do halftime shows for like the Orange Bowl and like these Florida bowls. And they would do these huge themed halftime shows to like whatever was usually to whatever was big at Disney at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there are always pretty, pretty entertaining, pretty worth watching. Well, it's funny too, that, I mean, just the production value, which, you know, the Disney production value was the standard at that point in time, uh, but the Super Bowl production value was a lot lower. So it's a lot yes. shorter and uh, it's just a different, different world. So go check that out. So as we said earlier, we have an interview with Don Dorsey coming up, and in it, he talks a good deal about the Main Street Electrical Parade and his involvement with it, starting in 1977 when the parade returned to Disneyland and debuted at Walt Disney World. Here's a bit of that interview. We're doing a show on this 1980 Disneyland Walt Disney World soundtrack that came out, and the first track is this Main Street Electrical Parade medley. One of the songs is called A Bit Bubbly, I've seen on the Disney World soundtrack, and it was uh, credited to you. Did you just write that underwater piece? That's correct. Well, that I always loved that piece. And that wasn't based on any, like, quoting anything from Disney? No, that unit actually evolved from a briny deep unit and i forget how exactly it came about but jim had suggested doing something with sonar you know people just sort of associate that ping 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 sound um, and i thought oh that's easy i can make that musical so i basically wrote uh, a counter melody to baroque down so it would lay inconspicuously and yet conspicuously over the top. Oh, it's so beautiful. I mean, it's funny that because every, every other segment pretty much has a quote of something, so that's pretty unique. So when you're making a track for this, everything's still monophonic, correct? Which means you can only play one note at a time. Uh, that's correct at that point. Well, no. The Prophet 5 synthesizer came along in late 70s, I think. That that was what we used for the announcement. I played the Prophet 5 through the vocoder to create the opening announcement. But the parade tracks were basically monophonic. It, it was a very simple soundtrack. I mean, very simple ideas, just counter melodies, because the Baroque Hoedown basic track was still the same as the original recording. Mm -hmm. I had just separated the right channel from the left channel. And as you know, in those early days, stereo wasn't very sophisticated. It was basically two passes on a two-track tape machine. So on the left was all of the rhythm, and on the right were a bunch of various synthesizer overdubs. So I took that away, and that enabled me to, to re-visualize or re-oralize, whatever the word is, the main melody, change the bass line, 
add some different counter melodies and things uh, and create basically a new basic track that then we put under every unit. Okay. And, I mean, how many tracks of stuff is on that roughly? I mean... Every unit was less than 16 tracks. Wow, that's most amazing. Of, most of them were eight... Most of them were eight to ten, but you got to remember the Bro Codown Foundation did most of the work. That makes sense because it feels so full and lush. But you know, these days it would have how many? You know, just be jam packed. So you're just dubbing those things one at a time to the tape machine and and kind of going again, correct? Right. On the soundtrack, there's a something called the neon ending, which I had to look up and figure out what it is. Can you talk about that and what it was like? Yeah, there was a, a thought. Bob Yanni had this idea that the parade needed something futuristic as a finale and something other than just more Christmas lights for another float. So this idea to do something with neon came about and the idea that it would be a sort of a cornucopia of Disney characters. So there were these rotating platforms with mirrors uh, would be twirling and reflecting, and then the neon outlines would, would be there, and it would be a Disney medley. So that float lasted, I think, only one year. Um, it just, it visually was jarring. It wasn't anything you know, and musically, it was drums, bass, and guitar, and it wasn't thematically consistent. The same way that the visual was a bit out of character, the music was also out of character, and it just didn't survive. Yeah, it's funny. As we grew up on this soundtrack, and I mean, that's why we're doing a whole episode about it, it's it was a made a big deal, and that was always so confusing to me because you were so used to it ending with the uh, stars and stripes and that whole thing, and I could never figure out what it was until you know we started doing this. But it, it's something else. If people have a chance to look at it on YouTube, there's some grainy video of it. Yeah, and Don actually played the drums on that version. Uh, so it's a little that is so weird. And yeah. this is uh, the neon finale is something that uh, I had never heard of until you turned it up doing research for this and i had always wondered what what that segment was on the album like every you know time we listened to this a million million times and you know i always wondered what it was because i knew it wasn't from the version of the parade that i knew and i had no idea it was this really weird different ending i know and it, it is really jarring i mean i remember thinking somewhere along the way probably as an older person adult but thinking what is like it 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 feels like a disco track taking over yes um and there are things i like about it and there are things that i feel like are very out of character you know it's again it's like the the drums and the bass and feels like more pop and anyway you should look it up listener at home because it is it is interesting yeah i like the idea of ending with like something a little futuristic and weird uh because the the flag ending is also kind of confusing in its own way yes yes uh to honor america but uh i could see how it would be a little it would fit kind of oddly but yes i'll always the thing i always assumed i guess growing up listening this was that it was a 70s thing and right. That's really that, that is the, accurate. the only explanation that I needed. 
It's interesting though. I mean, it's like the imagineering concept of so many things have to be in harmony to make it really last and be a classic thing and how that balance gets a little bit off and it's just not, it's just not it, you know? <laughs> it's, right. Well, another element that, you know, it ties in with what you were talking to Don about is there were so many, like back in the day, they added so many units to this parade just as temporary units. It's remarkable. So this version of the electrical parade is most likely an edit of the mix on the 1977 Walt Disney World electrical parade soundtrack LP. And this is interesting because they made different versions for Disneyland and Walt Disney World in 77 and Disneyland also had a recording that came out in 1973. Um, and there's some differences between this edit and the LP version, uh, that there's so there's just a bunch of editing going on and in the fanfare intro of the lp that they have in 1977 there's this weird pregnant pause without any voiceover which is interesting um i'm glad that the voiceover made it into later soundtracks it's not on this one in the 1980 version but it is in later soundtracks yeah it's it's a key element yes so shall we have a listen to our first yes. track I hope you all enjoy this rendition of the Main Street Electrical Parade.
Our next track needs no introduction whatsoever if you've ever been to a Disney park or are even remotely familiar with their soundscape. It's one of the most notable attraction theme songs of all time, Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me from Pirates of the Caribbean. Aside from appearing in the ride at various locations around the world, it's also referenced in the movies which the ride inspired, as well as in a variety of live park entertainment and other Disney movies and TV shows and ancillary media and games and books. It just tends to pop up randomly in pop culture over and over. Uh, but as important as the song is, we only get a brief snippet here on the album. Yeah, it's just the uh, very short and just a little Disney studio chorus singing it. A nice little uh, sea shanty tune this is. And, uh, and Michael, did you know that the Yo-Ho comes from a fictitious song called Dead Man's Chest from uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. I did not know that. I didn't either. And then, uh, yeah, it's the Yo-Ho-Ho and a Bottle of Rum is the kind of refrain of that one. Oh, that. So that is that is from that. I did not it know is. that. And, yeah. That's kind of uh, basic Pirate 101. That's right. That song. But uh, I think that uh, Treasure Island was part of the study material for... Pirates of the Caribbean, and so it lives a second life. Uh, well, the song itself is a product of a couple of Disney legends, with lyrics by X Atencio and music by George Bruns. Uh, X had been with Disney since 1938, but Pirates was his first project for Imagineering. He wrote a script, and he assumed Walt would bring in the Shermans for a song, but Walt really liked what X had done so much that he had him team up with George Bruns to set it to music. Uh, and X had said that in, you know, part of his deal writing for this was to add in a lot of piratey language. So I'm sure he went to Treasure Island and I'm sure he picked up Yo-Ho from there because 
Uh, he added in a lot of uh, piratey jargon. So that was one of his jobs. Uh, X had no previous training in scripting or songwriting, but he went on to become something of an amazing songwriter for Wed. Uh, his credits include this, Grim Grinning Ghosts, If You Had Wings, The Bear Band Serenade, It's Fun to Be Free, Here's to the Future and You, and El Rio del Tiempo. So once again, we see Walt recognizing talent and uh, taking people out of their comfort zones. Yeah, Walt as producer of all kinds of medium, but you know he saw something in X, and and you can tell with X's songs he uses a broader vocabulary than the normal lyricist would be, and and it's great. They're so funny and clever. He is such a clever lyricist. He really is. It's amazing. He just jumped into it and this was the output that he came up with. And for someone who wrote, you know, not that many songs, each one is kind of iconic in mm -hmm, its own way. Mm -hmm. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, X even wound up doing some voices for the ride, including the talking skull at Disneyland, which warns you before the first drop. Love that guy. And uh, the drunk sailor in the old auction scene that offers six bottles of rum as his bid at the auction. So hey. he uh, he pops in there. He pops in in the Haunted Mansion in a few places. And uh, he's just kind of everywhere. X was a cool guy. He, uh, yeah. And like you said, he had a, a long history at the studio, too. So he did, had a lot of feathers in his cap. Absolutely. Just another of the Renaissance men and women who contributed to these things. That's right. Uh, before we play the actual song from the soundtrack, I wanted to play a version, a demo version, that is on uh, Pirates of the Caribbean compilation that was released in 2006. This is a demo for the song, and it is interesting to see the tonal shift that they uh, that they made and where they started with it. It's, it's very pleasant and light, as you will hear. Here's a little bit of that. an interesting attempt at keeping it light uh which i'm sure was a consideration that they had when they were making this attraction but yeah it's like gilbert and sullivan or something <laughs> it's, it's like the vaudeville version kind of a disconnect so they had the chorus there but obviously the verse they had to work on but but also you know that's the the studio chorus and you think that they also had to have given them a good bit of rum to record the final version because it's a uh, the performance on the final version is is pretty great of the singers. Yeah, it's uh, a little bit rougher, a little bit rowdier, yeah. for sure. So without further ado, here is Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me from the 1980 soundtrack. Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me We pillage, we plunder, we rifle and loot Drink up, me hearties, Yo-Ho we kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot. Drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. 
Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. We extort, we pilfer, we filch and sack, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. Marauding and bezel and even hijack, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. We kindle and char, inflame and ignite, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. We burn up the city, we're really a fright, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. We're rascals, scoundrels, villains and maids, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. We're devils and black sheep, really bad eggs, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. We're beggars and flyers and ne'er-do-well cats, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. I but we're loved by our mommies and dads, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. Up next, we will take a trip back around to Main Street, USA for some of the first live ensemble music in the park. So, first of all, we do a Little Pirates and then back to Main Street. The sequence is already interesting. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, I don't know how much thought was put into this besides how much time they had to fit onto the record, you know? Uh, obviously, the Main Street Parade was a thoughtful sequence, but the rest of the show, I'm really not sure. I think it works in a musical way, in a weird way, as far as like the energy that is happening and where in the transitions. But it is really funny of when you're thinking about the park, it is really because they could have just put switch those two. Right. It's very different from like the modern, like Randy Thornton approach where you're taking like a tour through the park, like exactly audio tour. Right. And this is just kind of a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So it feels a little bit more like a radio show, as we've said. But So most of this medley appears to be a lift and edit from the musical Souvenir album, which we mentioned. The first song in particular, with the Dapper Dans and Pianist, has a much longer piece and tap dancing on the musical Souvenir <laughs> record. Yeah, that was like... I mean, at first, I, until I was an adult and eBay happened, I was not aware even of that other soundtrack album and it was a delight finding that not only were a lot of these tracks that i knew from the 1980s soundtrack lifted from that but they were actually longer versions of right. all of them on that 73 album so it was so it was like getting you know bonus content that you never knew existed from something you'd like grown up listening to and suddenly here's a much longer usually considerably longer cut of it. It's funny, like a lot of these songs that we are listening to, they are trimming every little bit of fat. Um, so you know, they lift the ending on this one and fuse it onto the first verse, I think. And, and like I said, the Main Street Electrical Bird, they are just cutting all these little different bars away. So it's really funny to see how they're, you know, I, I hope that their intention was to make it as infectious as possible. I hope it wasn't just to like keep keep everything on one side of the record. But I'm going to assume that it was just to make it lean and mean and what is needed. Right. Well, when you yeah, when you listen to the longer version and then listen to these, it's really clear how they took no prisoners in like editing this stuff right, down. Right. And it goes from one thing to the next, just boom, boom, boom. So we're going to talk a little bit about these individual songs, and then we will listen to the whole track at the end. So it starts with the Dapper Dans doing Coney Island Washboard. And I should mention there also the Main Street pianist has to be there with them because there's a piano player there. So 
This song was first recorded by a group called the Five Harmaniacs. Whose members, Wade Hampton Durand and Jerry Adams, wrote the music, and Claude Sugart and Ned Nestor writing vocals. This band was a jug band that didn't last too long, (laughs) but in that time, they toured the vaudeville circuit, played radio tours, and recorded music for Victor and a few other labels. Some of the members held from Indiana, and I have to mention Ocracoke, North Carolina, Oh, wow. Yeah. But the band operated out of New York City, and it was in New York that the band would record an instrumental version of Coney Island Washboard on September 17th, 1926, as a B-side to Sadie Green, Vamp of New Orleans, which... Oh, love that one. (laughs) Gotta be the A-side, you know. But it's it's funny that this this song became their song, and it was a B-side and an instrumental, but... It wouldn't be recorded with the lyric. The song would be picked up by the popular recording artists, the Mills Brothers and Hoagie Carmichael in 1932 each. And the song would go on to be covered by many people through the years. It's just so funny to me how a random song like this, recorded by the Five Harmaniacs Jug Band, could enter like the popular culture, get covered by somebody like Hoagie Carmichael, become a thing... And then, what, 40 years later, here it is on uh, on a record that we grew up listening to right. from Disney World. It is really interesting. And uh, let's hear the Harmaniacs. Let's hear what they have yes. to say about it, because this, uh, this is quite the ditty. So there is a little bit of the Five Harmaniacs <laughs> version of Coney Island Washboard, which, you know, all I can say is it was a different time. They are clearly Harmaniacs. Yes. I'll yes. give them that. That is really something else. And this is such a weird, it's, it's a weird song in general. And like, I feel like just listening to it as a kid, it's one of those things that as a kid, you just accept. Right. Because everything's kind of weird. And like I never really knew what they were talking about. I was thinking, listening to this in preparation for this episode, thinking about all the songs that I didn't understand as a kid, but you just kind of roll with it. <laughs> and then as an adult, you pick out the lyrics and like realize like what they're actually saying and what they're talking about. And especially for this record, which was one of the very first records either one of us ever listened to, it going way, way, way back. It uh so many of these songs, I had no idea what any of it like meant, really. Uh, but like over the years, you'd be like, "Oh, that's what that line is," you know. Oh, right. I get it, right. you know. 
and this is a prime example of it because it's a very strange song. Well, yeah, and there's so many. I mean, this is why I love this record to this day is I see so many things that I enjoy in music that came that strands came from this record because it's kind of very it's super eclectic as we've talked about and there's so many different threads and uh so much history uh so it's just another example of that it's really right well that's what was great about disney of this era is they were pulling like deep deep cuts from entertainment history like not everything was newly produced for the thing uh, or based on you know the most recent movie uh, movie they would pull these i mean you would have to be a musicologist to even have heard of the five right. harmaniacs right right and so it's that extra texture and that gives you a base like especially when you're exposed as a kid as you're growing up to come in contact with these things in the real world and be like oh my gosh i know that Right. So that's always a fun moment. Do you think you can dance the Big Apple to the Coney Island washboard? <laughs> I mean, I, I feel certain has you'd to be at way. least have to give it a shot. Yes. So we can't leave this without talking a little bit about the Dapper Dans, who everybody knows. They're the, they started in 1959 at Disneyland, though a barbershop quartet had been on Main Street since 1957. Uh, legendary Disneyland entertainment man Tommy Walker, who we've discussed in the Wilderness episode. He would hire the initial quartet, but it would be talent manager Chuck Corson who would envision a group as doing a bit more than singing, a little vaudevillian shtick, and maybe some tap dancing. And some of the original Dan's, Michael, were recruited from the Fred Waring Corral, those Pennsylvanians. That's amazing. Yeah. I never knew that. Those of you who don't know what we're talking about, the Fred Waring and his Pennsylvanians appear on Melody Time for the Trees segment, which is, you know, that is way up there in my Disney love, the, the Trees segment in Melody Time. Which has a uh, North Carolina Mountains connection. But. Come on. That's right. That's right. So they have graced Main Street ever since, have the Dapper Dans. So, you know, Walt loved the Dapper Dans. And what this really does is... This album and the 1973 album both go to underscore the importance of live entertainment yes. in the parks. Yes. yes, And the incredible amount of texture and entertainment they provide and just how fundamental they are to the experience. I mean, this is something that I love about this version of the soundtrack is that it leans a lot on live entertainment, especially in little segments of transition. So, uh, but man, yeah. Great performances, great engineering. We will get to the actual version of this stuff that we're going to hear a little bit later. But next, we have to go to the next song, which is Minnie's Yoo-Hoo. And this song has a really unique history. It is the only song I know of that was co-written by Walt himself. And the other writer was called Carl Stalling, who was the first musical director at Disney Studio. And Carl had a very interesting career and was very influential in the early days of the studio. Walt met Carl in Kansas City, where he was working as an accompanist for silent films. And he and Carl struck up a friendship, and when Walt was busy making Steamboat Willie, he hired Carl to write scores for upcoming Mickey Shorts, which Carl did first with The Barn Dance and Playing Crazy. It's really crazy. I mean, this is a legendary guy, and it's yet another of this sort of Kansas City mafia right that Walt brought from Kansas City all these people who 
founded, well, I don't know if you can say founded, but really innovated and amped up the animation industry, uh, all coming from Kansas City. And all people that kind of trailed along with Walt. It's so strange. And Carl would develop some of the Silly Symphonies concept, talking with Walt about starting development of a short with music first. And Carl worked on many of these and was very influential in the concept of the first short, The Skeleton Dance, which he also wrote the music for. And this is a little inside baseball, but he also contributed to the idea of what we know now as the click track designed to sync the animation to music, which is now a music industry standard in syncing musicians to each other. So this is kind of an amazing thing for me to realize that Disney was involved in developing this thing that I use every day when I work. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, well, it's one of those one of those things that people don't realize started off at Disney's and is now an absolute worldwide industry thing that everybody does, and it started there. You just, I mean, thinking about all these innovations and how they had a problem they needed to fix, and the troubleshooting just makes my head hurt. I mean, how would you even <laughs> think about doing these things? Yeah. Exactly. So Carl would eventually leave Disney in the wake of, of iWorks quitting in 1930. That was a dark day for the studio and would go on mm. to work with many studios, but most notably Warner Brothers, where he would work on Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes shorts until his retirement in 1958. And that's a real shame. I mean, Disney obviously did just fine on the music front without him, but he was such a legendary guy and that he was involved with Disney so early on and to have kept him around. Uh, thankfully, Ub came back. I was going to say. only yeah. Carl had come back too. Thank goodness. You know, who knows what might have happened because he was a genius. And Carl was really famous for incorporating all kinds of music into what, what we know is that Looney Tunes style. Um, but also it was predated the Looney Tunes and, and some of his stuff at Disney where he would quote, famous pieces of music. So another way of in incorporating you know, classical music and different themes into his work is, is really interesting. But um, back in 1929, Minnie's Yoo-Hoo was written for the short Mickey's Follies and was an immediate hit. Back in these days, Walt himself was the voice of Mickey, but it is believed someone else sang the song, which I'm pretty sure they did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when we hear it, you'll... Yes. The song was the first original work by the Disney studio, and it was published as a song sheet, and so was the first published piece as well. Oh, that's wild. And the song was used for years as the official song of the Mickey Mouse fan club. Not the uh, Mickey Mouse club we know today, but the theater-based fan club they had, and as a cue for Mickey Mouse cartoons. So this is an important song. Let's have a listen to the original version. Oh, Minnie. 
Wow. Yeah, I'd uh, I'd put twenty bucks on that not being Walt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty certain that's not Walt. But boy, it's so weird. And the animation, seeing it, the animation <laughs> that comes with it is kind of disturbing as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's this really funny thing that happens before where this duck is brings out this sign that says Mickey's theme song, and there's this and shakes a tail feather. And there's this weird little organ sound that happens when it, when it happens. So it's really bizarre. <laughs> of course, this song would later appear in the bizarre Ward Kimball created TV show, The Mouse Factory, which yeah. would run for two seasons in the early 70s. The song would play over the end credits of every episode. So we can't talk about this song without playing some of that version because, you know, yeah. it, is, it is also something. Man, I this is one that I wish would show up on Disney Plus because it I is know. really nutso. It is. Well, you expect that from Ward Kimball. Here's that version. I mean, you can't beat yeah. that. You cannot beat yeah. that. Uh, that's a that's a good version. That's a great <laughs> it's, version. It's canon right there. So the performers of this version on our soundtrack are the saxophone quartet, also called the Keystone Cops. That's with a K. They were described in the musical souvenir as, quote, dressed in nostalgic costumes of the 1920s. These talented saxophonists are ready for a musical chase down Main Street, USA. Just when you least expect it, unquote. <laughs> so, yeah, they're featured in a lot of older Disneyland specials, and notably in the Magic of Walt Disney World movie, they are circling a poor young lady in a harassing fashion. Is this what they did? They just chase people around? Just when you least expect it. Maybe that was their gag. There's, yeah, in the in the musical souvenir, there's a tale, a coda to this song, and they play a kind of little chase theme and yeah they do, the do don't thing they? yeah so maybe there was an interactive element i guess so. get chased by a saxophone cop yeah you must be able to play saxophone and run i guess anyway next up is the maple leaf rag by the main street pianist and uh and many of you know this is a famous scott joplin piece and this is probably the most famous ragtime piece there is Joplin was a composer and performer that ended up, for a time, in Sedalia, Missouri, where a short-lived social club inspired the piece. It was here, also, that Scott would meet his eventual publisher, John Stark. The song was released in published form in 1899, eventually becoming the first piece of published music to sell a million copies. The first recording was done in 1903, and Joplin would have an up-and-down life, dying at age 49 in 1917. The music of ragtime became an international sensation and would see a resurgence in the 1960s and 70s, particularly with the release of the 1973 soundtrack to The Sting, which would make 
Joplin a chart topper again. And of course, the sting was a big deal for us as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, this music was, uh, you, you played some Scott Joplin in your day, didn't you? I was about to say, I, I, as, as I think most kids do, I went through a big Scott Joplin phase in my teens. <laughs> um, yeah, this, of course, this was my first exposure to ragtime to Scott Joplin was from this Maple Leaf rag on this record. And then, uh, later on getting exposed more through the sting but I went through a phase where I was super into playing like ragtime piano. Um, and you know, I've still got all my sheet music or whatever, but it, it was mainly inspired by this. I think we'll find a, a lot of things I dabbled in were inspired by this record as we go on. But, uh, you know, one thing I learned was that it is not easy to play this song. No, no. It, well, let me say, it is impossible to play this song as fast as they do on this record. Right. It is like almost physic. It's like saying here, run as fast as this cheetah. It is just physically not impossible. And when you listen to the old Joplin stuff, um, you know, weirdly, I've been reading a little bit about Joplin recently, and it's such a tragic life. He died so young. And, you know, faced racism and all these, you know, barriers along his way and died a poor guy, which is just awful considering his just amazing amount of talent. But when you listen to the original way, like Maple Leaf Rag was meant to be played, it's, it's, it's a fast piece, but it's, you know, moderately fast piece, but man, on this record, they just tear it up. Yes. I mean, it's, I don't understand. And it's so, so well articulated, all that, you know, it's like. Yes, there's no goofs or anything. Like I tried for years and years and years. I mean, I would play this and try and speed it up and speed it up and speed it up. But never could I even approach this just like light speed pace. Right. Of, of this recording. Yeah, and I wish we knew who this was. I mean, this is the Main Street Pianist, as, it, as it's credited. And like the Dapper Dans, they were the Main Street Pianist is an iconic performer on Main Street USA and an ambassador to the park to millions of guests. And they, they really have a chance to interact with folks on an intimate but busy corner of Main Street. It's really cool how a lot of people are watching, kind of paying attention, but you can really get up close and talk to them. Um and Walt Disney World, we're very lucky to have the pianist uh, Jim Amahundro, and he's graced the keys for over 35 years. And he is amazing. so extremely talented, such a great guy. And I used to work on Main Street. I ran into Jim almost every day he was around, and he was always smiling, coming to and from, uh, doing his sets. And I mean, what a guy. And he is an incredible pianist. And so incredible, just unbelievable talent. And I, not only like, as you say, willing to deal with not, not only willing, but eager to deal with people and able to like talk to people while he's playing and able to field requests for everything from, you know, actual period music right. to like, I'm sure he knows a billion obscure rags right. that he could play. Right. Right. But, you know, he has to deal with people coming up asking him to play, like, Let It Go or whatever, <laughs> probably 500 times a day. And he can do that, too. He can do whatever. 
Yeah. And I mean, people just throw out stuff left and right and he can handle it. It's incredible. So this predates Jim. We will just have to call it Main Street Pianist. But let's finally take a listen to our music from Main Street here from the 1980 soundtrack. On her Coney Island washboard she would play You can see her on the boardwalk every day Soap suds all around, little bubbles on the ground Rub-a-dub-a-dub in her little tub, all those tunes she's found Pimples on her fingers makes a noise Play Charleston on the laundry for the boys She can rag a tune right through the knees Of a brand new pair of BBDs on a Coney Island washboard Tiki culture had been alive and well for decades before Walt Disney's enchanted Tiki Room, but the unique circumstances of the time led to the creation of the attraction and its music. Tiki culture in America reaches back into the 1930s, but after World War II and the return of soldiers from the Pacific, it really took fire in post-war America. Add to that Hawaii's statehood in 1959, and the Tiki Room was definitely in the pulse of American culture at the time it was being developed. In the music world, there was a lot of development in the genre we now call exotica during the 1950s. Les Baxter truly pioneered this genre with 1951's Ritual of the Savage, an easy-listening record that incorporated tribal rhythms under lush orchestral settings. Baxter was an on-and-off-again composer for film, most notably the Beach Party series of films starring Annette Funicello. And Michael, once I looked into this, I had no idea how many beach party movies there were. I had no idea. First, I had no idea that he was involved with those. And also, I'm not aware that there were that many. So that you're saying that there were quite a few. A lot. And there was one called Pajama Party that had Tommy Kirk and Annette Funicello. So, uh, well, that's a must watch for us. Yes, that, that, that puts it on the list for sure. So in 1959, composer Martin Denny would release what would become a touchstone for this genre with Quiet Village, the exotic sounds of Martin Denny. 
This album would not only cover a few songs from the Ritual of the Savage album, but also include the Hawaiian War Chant, which would make its way into the Enchanted Tiki Room. As development of the attraction proceeded in the early 60s, Walt brought in Richard and Robert Sherman to write a song to explain the concept of the show. It probably didn't hurt that the Shermans had written the 1960 hit Pineapple Princess for Annette to headline her record Hawaiianette. This was one of their first tasks at Disney, and their work for the Enchanted Tiki Room would be their first of many theme park attractions. And uh, there's a pretty funny story about this. I'll let Richard tell it in his own words. When, when he was working on it, developing the Enchanted Tiki Room, he'd, in, he'd invite VIPs down and friends to see it in a section of one of the sound stages, like a huge place like this, and they would do this show. And when it was through, people would say, it's, it's great, Walt, but what the heck is it? What is this? You know, and he'd have to explain, well, this is all the animatronics and everything. So one day he called my brother Bob and myself to come down and see this thing, and we looked at it. And it was all through, and we said, gee, it's great, Walt, but what is it? And he said, okay, everybody says that. You're going to write me a song that's going to explain all of this. So we said, oh, oh, I see. So the birds sing, and the, uh, the flowers sing, and croon. Oh, I get it. Okay. So we wrote the the, in the Tiki 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 Room to explain what it was all about. Now, what Richard doesn't mention in that story is that when Walt asked him and his brother to come up with a song for the Tiki Room, he immediately had a tune in mind. And that tune was based on something that the brothers had written a few years earlier in 1960 for an episode of the Disneyland television program. And this song is entitled The Swiss Family Robinson Calypso. Great name. Uh, It was created for uh, the episode entitled Escape to Paradise, which is a plug for the kind of a behind the scenes plug of the filming of Swiss family Robinson in Tobago. And uh, they came up with a little ditty called the Swiss family Robinson Calypso. And I think when you listen to it, uh, you will definitely hear the roots of the Tiki room. So here's a little bit of that from the episode escape to paradise. And that's the adventure we take you on now. So here is Sir Hercules the Invincible and his friends, who will tell you about it in typical Tobago style. The Swiss Family Robinson Calypso. Tobago is a beautiful tropic island. Where the people are happy and the weary smile But we learned that the main occupation Is dancing the limbo in the noonday sun Limbo! So yeah, you can definitely hear that verse is is kind of set in there. That's a, it makes sense that they reworked it. Yeah, it, it's funny. I uh, I had uh, never heard of this until a good friend brought it to my attention just yesterday. And 
never been on my radar before, never heard of the Swiss Family Robinson Calypso, but you can definitely hear the roots. This this attraction had a long history of development. It's pretty interesting. You know, it was going to be a, a restaurant, and then they pitched it to the World's Fair, and it ended up just being a standalone attraction. It's it's pretty amazing that that they could kind of sum it up in a way that made it kind of come together like that. Right. Oh, well, yeah. It's one of those ideas that just kind of grew and grew and grew. In the tradition of, I think, a lot of Walt's ideas that just kind of grew and kept exceeding its scope. And there were a lot of interesting ideas along the way. But, of course, the final product was pretty darn perfect. Uh, to do this and write this song, the Shermans would join music director George Bruns, who was gathering an eclectic blend of music for the presentation and he united them under one of his just wonderful, wonderful arrangements. Uh, also present in the final version of the show would be the song Closing Bows slash Drums that was written by Jimmy Dodd, former leader of the Mouseketeers and composer of the Mickey Mouse Club March. I had no idea. That was that was news to me. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we always say Tiki's play their drums. <laughs> that, that, that. <laughs> exactly. Who knew? Who knew? Looms large. I know. I'd, I'd love to know more about that process, how he got involved in that. Anyway, uh, on this soundtrack, we are only graced with the show's opening theme, but it bears mentioning that incredible voice talent was involved in this show. The Bird Chorus alone has lots of voice actors who were involved in many projects, including Clarence Ducky Nash, a.k.a. Donald Duck, uh, Maurice Muzzy Marcelino, <laughs> and a man named A. Purvis Pullen, who was a quote unquote novelty vocalist? Oh boy! Who also went by the name Doctor Horatio Q Birdbath, <laughs> and was I guess one of those people who would show up on like TV shows back back in the day, and uh, it was said he could replicate more than nine hundred bird sounds. Could Doctor Horatio Q Birdbath call so, him a specialist, not a generalist? <laughs> right. Uh, sadly, I don't think he has a window on Main Street, nor is he a Disney legend, but I think, uh, yeah, someone needs to work in a reference somewhere. Uh, George Bruns' wife, Jean Gale, even contributed vocals to the show, so it was a family affair. We are most familiar, of course, with the four bird hosts who front the show. It was the Sherman Brothers who first suggested a tropical bird serve as MC, but Walt took it one step further and said it should be four separate birds from different countries naturally of course and also i mean that just speaks to the sherman brothers they, they were always had that producer mindset uh, mary poppins too they were just always thinking of this should happen and i mean they're just yeah, the songwriters pitching in right. pitching in ideas here and there and of course that only as their stature grew that that grew but it's fun to see that they were contributing big ideas at this early time right uh our mc jose is the most prominent bird in the show, and he's voiced by a legendary Disney comic, Wally Bogue. The other birds are Michael, voiced by Fulton Burley, Pierre, voiced by Ernie Newton, and Fritz, voiced by Thoreau Ravenscroft. Two of these voices are real Disney veterans. Fulton Burley was one of Wally Bogue's co-stars at the Golden Horseshoe Review, where he performed as the Irish tenor for 25 years, amazingly. Even more familiar is Thoreau Ravenscroft, who, as one of the mellow men, 
performed as a singing bust in the Haunted Mansion and in about a million different live-action and animated Disney films and theme park attractions. His voice is everywhere, if you know where to look. And, of course, we have to mention that outside Disney, he was not only Tony the Tiger's voice on television, but he was Kirby in The Brave Little Toast. Yes, yes. And those melamen are everywhere. You're right. Yes. Someday we're going to get around to that Brave Little Toaster show. It deserves it. <laughs> yes. um, Wally Bogue had been hired at Disney to star in the Golden Horseshoe Review, where he seems to have become Walt's favorite comedian. Walt really loved him and liked to put him in things. Uh, Wally performed as Pecos Bill for almost 40,000 shows over a period of 27 years. And he also contributed to the script of the Tiki Room. I love to imagine Walt reacting to Wally Bogue's comedy. I imagine, yeah, like popcorn flying out exactly, of his mouth. Exactly. And like snorting snorting Cokes in the Golden Horseshoe, right. or Pepsi, I guess it would be, in the Golden Horseshoe. Um, yeah, Wally Bogue was also a major, major influence on Steve Martin as a young comedian. Um, yes. He always gives props to Wally. So, Absolutely. And that, yeah, that was always nice to see. So Wally Bogue, just a super funny guy. And I kind of, he made a couple of cameos in at Disney movies and absent minded professor and son of flubber and love bug. But I wish he'd made, made more film appearances because he was just, the, he was great. He was too busy uh, being pick a spill, I guess. Yeah. Apparently. I mean, you can't miss those shows. But uh, his legend lives on. Before we play the actual track, I wanted to play a great instrumental version of this track that came out uh, a few years ago. And it just shows this great arrangement that George Bruns did, and I'll play it for you. <laughs> love that that is so Man, good beat that that is so like good some of my favorite music is just that instrumental uh so much going on and uh so much propulsion it's great it really is that just brun sound is amazing and the ever vaguely menacing flute of george Bruns, <laughs> yes, that's right always ready to strike the the vampin flute but. the vampin flute yes he amazing 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 arranger and that's one of the best the sherman bruns collaboration was a mighty one and so let's hear the two together and uh in this version from the 1980 soundtrack here is the tiki 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 room <laughs> ole, ole, it's show time 
In the tiki 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 room In the tiki 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 room All the birds sing words and the flowers croon In the tiki 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 room Welcome to our tropical hideaway You lucky people, you If we weren't in the show starting right away We'd think the audience too All together in the tiki 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 room In the tiki 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 room All the birds sing words and the flowers croon In the tiki the bird of paradise is an elegant bird. It likes to be seen and it loves to be heard. Most little birdies will fly away, but the tiki room birds are here every day. In the tiki 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 room, in the tiki 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 room, all the birds sing words and the flowers croon. In the tiki 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 room, a little louder. In the tiki 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 room, all the birds sing words and the flowers croon. In the tiki 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 room. Up next, we have the Foggy Mountain Breakdown by the Bluegrass Boys. Bluegrass Boys were also featured on the musical Souvenir. They uh, they sing a song called Tennessee. That's a good one. It is a good one. This song, much like Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag, is a standard bearer for its genre. Foggy Mountain Breakdown firmly placed the banjo at the center of bluegrass music and cemented a career for Earl Scruggs and his musical partner, Lester Flatt. Scruggs was born outside our hometown of Shelby, North Carolina, Michael. And I had growing up, I had no idea, you know, this was, this was involved with him whatsoever. I knew this song from this record, had no idea it was connected with the town we were living in. That's right. And they, uh, they recently opened a great museum dedicated to him and the old courthouse downtown. It's really something you've got to go see it, Michael. I know I have man I haven't been back to Shelby in a long time so we'll have a remote episode from there that sounds good Cleveland County North Carolina was a textile hotbed in the 1930s and 40s so Scruggs started out working in textiles but left North Carolina behind and headed towards Nashville to try out music and radio which you know I can't believe that they could make more money off radio than a job in textiles back then but even then So after his first band broke up, Scruggs joined Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys in 1945. The Bluegrass Boys were the true pioneers of the bluegrass genre. But Monroe is an extremely strong personality, to put it mildly. Uh, Scruggs wrote a song called Bluegrass Breakdown while in Monroe's band, but received no credit for it. Eventually, Scruggs and Lester Flatt, the guitarist for the Bluegrass Boys, struck out as their own as the Foggy Mountain Boys in 1948. And I think they were tired of touring on the road and they ended up just touring, 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 but at least they were pocketing the money. But the Foggy Mountain Boys, I mean, that is a great, great name for a band. That is, that, I mean, of course, it makes me think of, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Of course. Uh, It sounds more like an invented name than an actual name. So in 1949, they released Foggy Mountain Breakdown, and the rest is history. This was a reworking of the Bluegrass Breakdown song, so joke's on you, Bill. As I said, this song truly cemented banjo as a principal instrument in bluegrass, and it furthered the popularity of this new genre. Flat and Scruggs would go on to play for years and years, and Foggy Mountain Breakdown would see another surge of popularity when it was used in the 1967 movie Bonnie and Clyde. So here again, we see these like uh, 
new Hollywood movies. That's right. Coming in and popularizing this old school, old school stuff. Uh, the Bluegrass Boys here, not to be confused with Bill Monroe's outfit, they recorded this excellent rendition. I really love this version of Foggy Mount Breakdown. And according to the musical souvenir liner notes, their foot-tapping mountain music has never sounded better than what you hear from this group in Walt Disney World's Frontierland. And man, that is the truth. This is uh, this is another one, as I said, with uh, the Main Street Pianist on Maple Leaf Rag. I cannot fathom how uh, the human body can physically do (laughs) what they do uh, on this thing because it's just an absolute breakneck uh, warp speed. It is bizarre performance. And this was, you know, credit to Earl Scruggs again. I mean, he really pioneered this way of playing before that. But banjo is just kind of the claw hammer stuff you hear, and and that has had a resurgence lately and has its place, of course, but. This kind of breakneck speed banjo was was all Earl Scruggs, and it's uh, like I don't see how the human synapse can fire that quickly <laughs> to like make your fingers move that fast. It's just boggles my mind. Uh, this is another example of why I love this record so much and why it feels more like a radio show than a park tour. This song perfectly, so perfectly transitions into the next song to the point that when I was a kid. It wasn't clear to me that they were different things. I just thought that this was the first song of the Country Bear Jamboree. Oh, yeah. It just fits right in there. So let's hear the Bluegrass Boys and their great rendition of Foggy Mountain Breakdown. Yeah, buckle in. have arrived at the end of side a and waiting for us here is a wonderful medley from the country bear jamboree and as is the way of this record it is edited down to the bear essentials Uh, we have a lot to say about this attraction and we can't say it all here but as a lot of you know this attraction debuted in walt disney world in 1971 as one of the few unique attractions for the florida resort The music in this attraction was a reflection of the times in which it was produced, but it was also the result of a tradition of country music that had been developing since the early 20th century. Ernest Pop Stoneman headed from his home in Virginia to New York in 1924 to record some songs for OK Records, and his recording of the song The Titanic made him an early pioneer of traditional music, singing and playing autoharp, guitar, and harmonica. 
Electric recording was a new invention and enabled nuanced and softer instruments to come to the forefront of recordings. Stoneman's producer, Ralph Peer, would leave OK Records for Victor Records and began a search for more musical talent. At the encouragement of Stoneman, Peer would search the country for acts, particularly the Appalachians, where he would set up a mobile recording studio to record artists in the area. Peer went to Charlotte, North Carolina, and Savannah, Georgia, but Stoneman encouraged him to go to Bristol, Tennessee. The result was the Bristol Sessions, a 10-day stay in Bristol that would later be called the Big Bang of Country Music. Along with Stoneman and tons of other artists that would record, the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers showed up and were discovered, laying the groundwork for modern country music and casting influence down to today. Unfortunately for Ernest Stoneman, his luck was about to run out. During the Depression, Pop came upon hard times and had to leave music behind professionally and seek out work as a carpenter in the D.C. area. The family was poor, and Stoneman would continue working outside music for years, even as some of his children did take up music. Pop organized a band in the late 1940s, and from then on, some of Pop's and wife Hattie's 23 children would be playing music down to this very day. 23 children, and I think of those, 13 survived to adulthood. So that's right. It was a rough time for the Stonemans. Indeed. In the 1960s, daughter Patsy Stoneman would have her own act, and Ernest and the Stonemans would perform nationwide and on TV, eventually moving out to California. Pop died in 1968, and Patsy joined the family band in his place. Though the instrumentation would remain traditional, it was clear by the early 70s that the Stonemans were influenced and propelled by the folk revival of the 1960s, and were covering more contemporary artists like Townsend Zant and John Fogarty. And this is the group that would perform as the Bear Band, under the musical direction, again, of George Bruns. That is quite a history for the old bear band and something most visitors to the country marriage Embry probably never suspect. Yes. I mean, you think about the influence that one man had on so many musicians. I mean, I've been in bands that play Carter family songs. I mean, they, and they can owe their success to pop Stoneman. So, it's it's wild to think about the lineage and and how early these people were recording boggles my mind always. It's in the you know early twenties. I just can't imagine right. for these just shellac seventy eights back when it was called hillbilly music and right. that was the genre and just this really uh, wild roots music. They would go and record just up in the hills and find these people and it's crazy to think fifty years later. They're voicing animatronic bears in Florida. Yes, yes, that's true. And uh, it's quite a road. Uh, At this point, we should give a plug for the Passport to Dreams blog, which has done a lot of musicology about the Country Bear Jamboree and really put together a lot of the sources for this for the first time. And so Foxy's posts over there are must-see reading for anybody interested in this. Yes, that series of posts was an amazing lightning bolt to my brain. So thank you, Foxy. Right. Cause people, I think don't realize that a lot of these songs are, most of these songs are pre-existing songs, right? It's not like the, you know, the later vacation show and Christmas show used more familiar tunes. Uh, you know, these are, were all songs that were written by other people and were 
to some degree or other popular, but we're out there in the culture and uh, not Disney made up songs. Right, right. So we start off with Pianjo, which is Gomer's instrumental opening to the Country Bear Jamboree. And it was an instrumental written by Don Robertson. Don was a songwriter and recording artist best known for writing country hits for Elvis, Eddie Arnold, and countless others. Robertson experienced his greatest success with songwriting, but his solo compositions are playful and interesting. His song, The Happy Whistler, was a top 10 hit, and it is as it sounds, very happy whistling. Robertson would begin to popularize a style of piano playing called slip note style in his song, Please Help Me, I'm Falling. This style would later be taken to new heights by Floyd Kramer, who is a personal favorite. <laughs> yes, indeed. But it would also be a backbone of the music stylings of the Country Bear Jamboree with Gomer, who he also provided the voice for. Right, combining Robertson's piano playing with the Stonemans will get you fairly close to that Country Bear Jamboree sound. I love that slip note style because it just really matches well with the guitar and, and these songs. So it really does. It's something that's so, it's, it seems so natural that you don't even think of it as being a style, but it's once you hear it, you definitely realize what they're doing. Well, let's hear a little bit of this original version of Pianjo. Now this is right in my wheelhouse. I love it. So we might play the whole thing. Here it goes. you have to work to get a piano to sound like that a great sounding track and so uh, you can definitely hear the floyd kramer what i mean what is how would you describe that style is it just you know hitting a note really hard and then going a step up or step down and kind of easing off on the volume yeah and i think that would be approximates like a hammer on on a guitar where you're uh not hitting it again twice but you're 
just putting on a finger to change the note. So it has that kind of feel where, like you said, the second note kind of doesn't have as much of a attack as the first note. So it yeah, feels you're just kind of bending it up or down and right. easing off on the on the bottom. Um, but it's something Very interesting. Yeah, that song is incredible, and kudos to who. If it's George Bruns who found that or whoever, great find. And they use just directly lifted that, right? It is not a re-recording. It is a... No, it is an, an actual re-recording of the piece. So Don Robertson came in and recorded the piano for the show. Uh, and I'm assuming that that means he recorded it for the rest of the show because it definitely matches up with the style and sound of his piano. So pretty cool stuff. The Gomer in the Flesh. Up next is the Bear Band Serenade, and this song would be written by George Bruns and Exitensia, who need no introduction at this point. They seem to be everywhere. They Absolutely. They appear frequently. It's just amazing that X was assigned to write a song by Walt for Pirates, and his songwriting career would be so small, and yet all of his songs are big ones. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and everyone is one that sticks in your brain, and, I mean, they put him on all the big projects right from the start. We should also give a shout out at this point to Pete Renaday. Yes. Who is the voice of Henry, uh, our, our host here. And uh, another one of those great Disney voices. And this song again, is another giant exposition wrapped up into a song. So yes, it's true. After that in the, uh, in this version is the fractured folk song. And this is one of two songs in the Country Bear Jamboree by the duo Homer and Jethro, the other being Mama Don't Whoop Little Buford. And both of these songs are on the 1964 release Fractured Folk Songs. Homer Haynes and Jethro Burns started their duo as teenagers and would eventually settle into comic work, often doing parody songs. I want to play a little of Fractured Folk Song, and you can hear how much of it is similar to the Bear Band version. Here it goes. Ain't you gonna help me out over there, Henry? Goodness gracious, what do you think we got you on the record for? Boys, supposed to pick? boys, boys, please. If you can't cut it, just lay out. Boys, let's not fight now because we've got work to do here. Now here's a fractured folk song butchered by two birds. Yeah, we wrote these lousy lyrics, and we also wrote the words. The chords are very simple. In fact, there's only three. First it's G, then C and D, and then go back to G. But you gotta be quick. Simple? So, that's, that's just right. They, I mean, even the pattern at the start is right. the same. That's amazing. It's something else. I'll tell you another thing about this uh, soundtrack that is amazing. I, I keep talking about how the transitions are so great. I always thought when I was little and listening to this, and then I, and then I learned about music and learned the chords. They do that first it's G and C, then D, then going back to G, but you got to be quick. And then they go on to the next song, which has those chords. So I just thought it was the introduction to oh, yeah. how long will my baby be gone because it's quicker. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that. Yeah. That's snazzy. It works that way for sure. Yeah. And so, "How Long Will My Baby Be Gone" is a song by Buck Owens. It was originally released in 1968. Yeah. I love some Buck Owens. 
Buck had a very long career in country music and would be one of the pioneers of the Bakersville sound. Shout out to Andy <laughs> Castro. Yeah. Andy's, and you'll be very excited to hear that, uh, hear the connection be made. And, and that was a prominent interpretation of country music from around the 50s through the 80s. It's heavily influenced by rock and roll. A lot of great records came out and were influenced by that Bakersfield sound. I would say that the Bakersfield sound is the last little bit of the country bear sound. Uh, most of the instruments in the show were traditional instruments, and occasionally the actual sounds would be influenced by this West Coast country. And you can hear this pretty specifically on the Country Bear LP with all the George Bruns instrumentals that are so good. And Buck Owens, by the way, would be the co-host of Hee Haw with Roy Clark. And Hee Haw seems to revolve around a lot of these artists. Yeah, one of the Stonemans uh, was was a, a regular on Hee Haw. That's right. That's right. Uh, and a uh, part of our childhood Buck Owens exposure via right. via that. And then the Beatles, of course, who covered two songs yeah, that Buck did. Absolutely. Um, so here's a little bit of Buck's version of How Long Will My Baby Be Gone? And you can hear some of that Bakersfield sound. How long is forever? How soon is now or never? How long will these heartaches linger on? And how long will my baby be gone? How wide is the notion? How deep is the devotion? How long do these sleepless nights go on? And how long will my baby be gone? That's, I mean, that was one of those songs that once I heard that version, I was like, of course that's a Buck Cohen song. It's such a Buck yeah. Cohen song. <laughs> but it sounds almost like he's doing a character in the song. Right. It's, he's, he's almost halfway to a Mark Davis character just that's in a, that voice he's doing. Yeah. I mean, there's some of these songs you just wonder how they got into the Country Bear Jamboree because they're just so sincere and like normal songs. They're not wacky, but. Yeah. Uh, well, as with all these things, I just wonder who's, I mean, a lot of these were obviously more popular than others, but you'd think about like the comedic duo who, who at wed had Homer and Jethro <laughs> sitting on their shelf at home and they're like, Oh, I know what would be great for this. Right. Buck Owen seems more, more of a natural fit. That's right. And of course, you also have the Ballad of Davy Crockett, which was written by George Bruns. Uh, and we've talked about this song a ton on the podcast. In case you need a reminder, it was also written by Tom Blackburn. They wrote the Liberty Tree. And uh, Bruns was a musical director. So, of course, put Davy Crockett in there. Absolutely. You don't need an excuse. No. And we end with Come Again or Come On In. Uh, this finale was written by George Bruns and Tom Adair. Now, this songwriting duo had teamed up for the songs in Sleeping Beauty uh, a while ago, and uh, Adair had an incredible career, very all over the place. He started out exclusively as a lyricist and wrote some songs for Frank Sinatra and Tommy Dorsey, but would end up at Disney. Uh, there, after Sleeping Beauty, he would write several songs for the Mickey Mouse Club with Bruns and later Buddy Baker. 
And then in the early 1960s, Adair became a writer for television and would write episodes for tons of shows, including I Dream of Jeannie, Gomer Pyle, My Three Sons, Hogan's Heroes, so on and so forth. But his real masterpiece, Michael, was 1977's The Mouseketeers at Walt Disney World. That is correct. And I feel like ever since we did the episode of the Medfield College Film Society this last summer about the Mouseketeers at Walt Disney World, which everyone should listen to, and Tom Adair's name came up in that, looked him up for that, I feel like ever since his name has just been popping up all over the place. He is one of those guys that once you see he his is. name, it's everywhere. Absolutely. And so. in fact, it's in the theme park world, Adair was also responsible for pinning music for the original Golden Horseshoe Review, including the principal song, Hello Everybody, along with the musical director, Charles Lavere. And so that song was pretty notable. Yes, it was. It gets stuck in my head very often. Good old Tom Adair. But this song would end the Country Bear Jamboree show. It also welcomed people into the mile-long bar with one of my favorite bits of theme park goodness, which is unfortunately gone, where Melvin, Max, and Buff would sing Come On In, the alternate version, as people would come into the mile-long bar. What a great bit of extra layers. I always always thought that was the best when I was a kid. It was so much fun. I miss the mile-long bar a lot. And I really miss that gag of them being there on the wall when you came out. Because as a kid, it was so exciting because it's it's hard to explain. Like, I knew that they weren't real. But you almost enter into this, like, metaphysical agreement to kind of, like, it's like, I'm kind of believing that you're real. Like, I'm pretending that you're real and sort of enjoying this sort of interplay, even though I know you're not. But it, it's really hard to explain. Uh, but yeah, coming out and be like, you know, they're my buddies. You know, like you get to get up close to them and say, hey. Well, there was, a, yeah, I, I always credit this gag for as much as I enjoyed it. Also, uh, starting my fear of taxidermy that went on for a long time. Because <laughs> you can look up videos for this if you've never seen it. There's videos of them where they will be static for a long, long time. And then they'll just slowly come to life and kind of quietly move around. And then sometimes they'll talk and then they'll sing a song. But the fact that they go back to being static and then come back out of it. And, you know, I never quite uh, <laughs> got over that when I left the property. Kind of unnerving for you. Yeah. That that was a fun gag that, that they weren't just always just switched off static. Right. Writing. Right. They would just kind of like come alive and kind of twitch around a little bit. So brilliant. So fun stuff. There goes side A. Howdy, folks. Welcome to the one and only original country bear jamboree. Featuring a bit of Americana, our musical heritage of the past. But enough of this chit-chat, yak-yak, and flim-flam. Just refrain from hibernating. <laughs> and we'll all enjoy the show. The Bear Band Bounds will play now in the good old key of G. Zeke and Zeb and Ted and friend Bear named Tennessee. Zeke's twanging on the banjo and a tapping with his feet. A banging on the dish pine with a real old country beat. Zeb's a song on 
a fiddle with a crooked hickory bow. When the spirit moves that rule, he can make that fiddle go. Brother Ted is on the corn jug, now I mean that bear can blow. He also plays the washboard with the handle of a hoe. Playing mouth harp, he plays it kind of sad. He never took a lesson, he just picked it up from Dad. And little old Tennessee Bear is a featured on the thing. Sounds just like a guitar, but it's only got one string. So clap your hands and stomp your feet and try to keep right with them. One short thing the bear band's got is real old country, real old. Now here's a fractured folk song, butchered by two birds. Yeah, we wrote these lousy lyrics, and we also wrote the words. The chords are very simple. In fact, there's only three. First it's G, then C, and D, and then going back to G. But you gotta be quick. <laughs> How long is forever? How soon is now or never? How long will these heartaches linger on? And how long will my baby be gone? Top in Tennessee, green is stayed in the land of the free. Raised in the woods, so he knew every tree. Tamed him a bar, but he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett, he loved the wild frontier. We hope that you'll be coming back again. That you drop in to see us now and then. We've done our very best to please with just the bare necessities. We hope that you'll be coming back again. Come again. Come again. Anytime. The welcome man is always out and seeing you is fine. We hope that you'll be coming back again. That you'll drop in and see us now and then. We had such fun, we're gonna cry. We just can't bear to say goodbye. We hope that you'll be coming back again. Y'all come back, yeah? So that wraps up side A of the official album of Disneyland and Walt Disney World, circa 1980. Also, the year of my birth. Another reason for me to feel personally... Yeah, going back all the way to the beginning, that one. It's been fun to remember how these songs fit together, because, you know, this record doesn't exist in a digital form. So Ah, it's a unique... what... I I thought that too uh, until I discovered like a year or two ago it had been released on CD in Japan. Aha. 
thank the Japanese. So uh, that's where I was finally able to get a digital version of it after who knows how many years. Thanks to Japan, because why wouldn't Japan put it out on CD? Why not? Excellent. Well, thank you, Japan. Um, otherwise, it's hard to find, and it is a unique moment in time. So I'm looking forward to getting into side B. There's a lot of stories there. It's a whole nother world. Yeah, on side whole B. extra adventure. That's right. And then, of course, we have the Don Dorsey interview coming up soon. And another interview for side b so we'll keep that in the hopper each each side is just a treasure trip both of these interviews are just uh really really great interviews and uh, tell a lot of stories that i was always curious about and tackle a lot of areas that are really near and dear to me so uh, tune in for that don dorsey interview and then for our side b and our side b interview coming up next month This is a perfect opportunity to get in touch with us because if you have a question about the soundtrack, it's a two-part episode. So we can get back to you and answer your question for part two or side B, should I say. So let us know. Our email is podcast at progresscityusa.com. And of course, Michael is on Twitter at progresscityusa. I'm on Twitter at Jeff G. Crawford. We are waiting to hear your questions and feedback. And uh, please take the time to let your people know. If you think they would enjoy it, let iTunes know by liking and subscribing us, all the stuff that they always say. It really does help. So stay tuned for Don Dorsey two weeks next month. Another interview, mystery interview, and a trip through side B of the soundtrack. We hope you've enjoyed it. Take care. So long. Right now, it's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks Thanks for for joining us. us. Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.